The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. So thank you all for joining us today. I'm Debbie Pryor, the Artistic Program Manager at Guildhouse, and I'm very excited to welcome you to the Autumn Series of the Revision Speaker Series. I'm very pleased to introduce the panel session, Finessing an Independent Voice, and our speakers, Chair Jessica Ellis, Director of Writer SA, and the panelists, Dr. Ali Gamala-Baker, visual artist, former filmmaker, writer, and learning woman who lives and works on Ghana Yatta. I'd also like to introduce Raylene Forrester, based in Adelaide on Ghana land, an independent curator and writer and co-founder of Fine Print Magazine. And Dr. Lauren Carol Harris, a writer, researcher, reviewer, working across film and contemporary art. So without any further ado, I will pass you over to Jessica. Thank you, Debbie. And good to see everyone this afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Um, and I'll also acknowledge that uh, I too am joining you all from Ghana country and pay respects to elders past and present. Well, we're going to be talking about critical writing, uh, the craft of writing and the importance of having uh, a rigorous critical culture. Um, I thought I would begin by asking you, Ali, for a little bit about, uh, a bit of background about how you came to arts and writing, your, your journey to finding yourself in the place that you are now as a respected senior lecturer. And if you could give us your perspective on why developing this capacity for independent critical voices, why it's so important to a culture of arts and creativity. Thank you, Jess. I just want to um, acknowledge, say hello to everyone and acknowledge that I'm on Ghana country, um, on the Ghana plains near Karawira Parry, the River Torrens, and I'm actually living quite near to where I first studied at university, so that old Underdale campus of University of South Australia, which is now a new build housing development with very little evidence of the activities of the art school left. I guess uh, to acknowledge also that I come from a long line of political people, educated people, artists and activists and throughout my education, including my my schooling and my undergraduate degree, I didn't, I wasn't taught by any Aboriginal people. And so the kind of impact, I wasn't taught in the formal sense. So inside those institutions of knowledge, the people that I was taught by growing up and that I understood to be my elders and community, our histories and knowledges and even our histories in relation to colonisation were not known by the broader community and certainly not really known by the other students at the art school. And some of the lecturers did know some parts of our histories, but we weren't we weren't taught them in a way that said Aboriginal people are front and centre in where we are located. And so for me, at various times, that made me feel quite angry and potentially theoretically wounded. So I would go into spaces where it was just words and feel as though I'd been kind of cut apart by the violence of the deliberate absencing of um, our communities in this space and what that 
ultimately meant for me was that I just kept going with my studies and my thinking and I always loved making art so I, I did walk away for a while and just didn't make any artwork and then you know I've returned to this space because it's it is a really the visual arts in particular is a space where you can have lots of capacity for different voice there's a freedom that can be found there but there's also potentially a lot of superficiality in terms of kind of why I think it's important to develop lots of different voices, but particularly Aboriginal people's perspectives on um, and read and listen to Aboriginal people's understandings of our histories and Indigenous people's knowledges around our histories of recent histories of colonialism and long, uh, our long histories of country. Um, I think otherwise we really in threat of just having oppressive narratives overtake us. Um, in ways that we can see historically are not beneficial to anyone um, and they're not the kind of world that I want to live in with my children or I want anyone's children to live in. So, and also the other creatures and human and non-human that we inhabit the planet with. What do you think, it, like, what was the, um, like, what would you sort of credit was the thing that allowed you to make space and actually, like, become such a... You know, because the journey is not linear, right? Like, so what was it for you that that um, sort of got you into the space and then how did you sort of, yeah, make your way through it? I think writing for me in particular is not is something that I had to try really hard to be good at. And after finishing my PhD, I pushed myself through such an, a difficult space because that's what's required of you in an institution like a university to meet the requirements of a very of a whole you know of a whole set of kind of hoops that you need to jump through but it required me to kind of be really good at, at writing and that is something that has taken me a long time but I guess it wasn't linear in any sense like the the relationship to knowledge has always been fraught for me and if I think about the kind of textual relationship to knowledge in particular use of English uh, it's very anxiety provoking. If I think about my mum and I think about my grandmother and all my aunties who I spent a lot of time with growing up and spent time on the Nullarbor with my grandmother, I can kind of see that our relationship to the colonising kind of narrative has been oppressive. If you go and look at the kind of records that are kept on my family, the written accounts, and it's not just me, it's all Aboriginal people in South Australia. If you go to the South Australian State Records and you go to any of these repositories, these archives, what you find is really violent textual evidence of, of the ideologies of colonialism that have justified um, movements and, you know, movements of people globally. But for me, I also have found... I was always a reader, so I spend a lot of time reading black women and Indigenous women, and it's been like a salvation for me reading some of my, you know, fellow beautiful women globally um, has saved my life at various times. So I understand the kind of responsibility, so it would never be that I would just absorb knowledge and not share and even though sometimes it's very difficult for me to be brave and speak, I try to continue on a journey of being, of honouring my elders and people who have come before me, the trailblazers, the political people, the activists who have gone 
who remind me that I have something to share that I should share it. So yeah, so I come back and forth into that feeling of of and and Natalie Harkin, who's part of the Unbound Collective, might say we're compelled to respond, and certainly I feel that. I feel a compulsion to respond, but also a compulsion to hold space for my communities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, the um, reading is is such a huge part of writing, like not only from like understanding theoretical frameworks and, and the work that other people have already done and the foundations of theory that we're building on, um, but also as a way to develop craft is is such a such a part of it. Um, and I think that's a really good point about um, being generous and trying to think of the expression that I heard someone use yesterday about um, not pulling up the rope behind you, leaving the rope so that others can come up with you as you, you know, as you move through your, um, you know, practice or career or what have you. Thank you, Ali. I suppose with thinking about some of those things, like particularly when you're talking about like legacies of, you know, the ongoing uh, ongoing colonization of being in a place that has never actually experienced um, a moment of decolonization. Thinking about institutions um, and uh, so uh, Raylene, I was going to ask you, um, thinking about the fact that so many of us uh, inhabit multiple roles uh, within our creative lives and so we may work sometimes with institutions, we may work independently, um, we may work with collectives, uh, and often there are power dynamics and tensions um, between those things that we have to constantly navigate. Um, so I was wondering how you navigate the power dynamics between these different kinds of entities, institutions, being an artist um, and working in grassroots spaces. And how do you maintain integrity and agency as a critic? And what kind of tensions or responsibilities do critics have to themselves and to the art? and to the community. Yeah, thanks, Jessica. That's very loaded sort of <laughs> question. Um, and I like the point that you mentioned before about our practice not being linear and the fact that most times I don't consider myself a critic. I consider myself an arts worker that does a lot of writing and writing is forming a sort of major component of that at the moment, but you're right, as, as a writer or as a critic or as an artist, we have to navigate a lot of different relationships with um, different forms of power structures and institutions and Adelaide being a, a smaller community, yeah, they're, they're places that you could either have been formally employed by and then become a reviewer of a, a particular exhibition in their space. There's all kinds of different, um, yeah, changes in the way that uh, we work with other um, spaces and artists. But I think for myself and I think um, for the pieces of writing that I've done as an independent writer, I try to I try to stay informed by both both the facts. I think that some of the best forms of writing or reviews and critical reviews that I've read, are kind of based both in the facts of either the space and what they're showing and, and how they've positioned that work and then the sense of expression. Um, I think critical reviews, writing reviews, it's an art form in itself and it's a form of expression in itself and I think that we have to kind of value that that writer is trying to create a kind of work that can stand on its own feet as well. Yeah, there are a lot of things over the years I've kind of learned and on like a very sort of base sort of level in, 
Amer in administrative sort of way is that I think you have to sort of balance the opportunity with you know what are you being paid what's the information that you've that you've received about about this exhibition that you're reviewing all of those things you know I have to keep going back to the NAVA code of practice at times like you know am I being am I being paid the appropriate wage for this for this piece of writing there's they're uncomfortable conversations to have, but I think that they're necessary that we're all sort of on the same kind of level playing field. And I think for, you know, for us in Adelaide, we have a small collection of major institutions and I think it's necessary that we kind of critique them and not so much in those sort of binaries of being either positive or negative. I think if ever there's a time that we're living in a grey space, it's probably, it's right now with this pandemic. But I believe that we have to have these uncomfortable conversations and we need to publish work that really not criticises, but deeply engages across a lot of different forms of reading and, and gauges, engages with the different forms of knowledge that really questions what these institutions are doing. What are they providing for us? Just sort of researching this question, I was reminded of a piece that Fine Print published by artist James Tyler about decolonizing Indigenous Australian art at the Art Gallery of South Australia and the fact that the lack of prominent exhibition spaces, um, the use of temporary ex exhibition spaces or kind of thoroughfares throughout the gallery. And the piece is remarkable in its sense that it uses um, strong research of what the collection has, what it has produced, um, statistical information of what they've exhibited, but then also his own personal realisations of like the lack of representation, how he can position himself within that space and what he can and can't see um, through the exhibitions that AGSA have produced. Um, I think it's a really, really striking work that sort of begs the right questions. And I think that, yeah, there needs to be more writing like it, that not just, it doesn't just criticise, but it just sort of deeply asks the purpose, you know? I think it's really, it's, yeah, based in like, what is what is the purpose? What are the obje objectives of these, of these larger sort of spaces? I also was reminded of a piece last year that a um, Chinese-Australian artist, Lily Lay, wrote about working at the MCA. And I think it was more like a blog post than an article, but she speaks of many encounters of um, racism, of classism, of a lot of ingrained problems uh, within the internal framework of the organisation, not so much of its exhibitions, but it really explores the other side, the other behind the gallery walls of what happens and you know these are important questions to ask too because really it's everything that's happening at the top has an Im immense effect of what ends up on their walls and how they present themselves to a community so um I think there is some impeccable writing out there that really does sort of question what institutions can do and it does it in a respectful way that yeah it's sort of balances that line between here are some strong facts and research and here is here is my position and and my opinion yeah fantastic I think that that idea of questioning 
and the engagement, like the, the invitation that is inherent within the question is such a good point, Ray. Before we talk about the kind of nuts and bolts of, uh, of craft and criticism, uh, I thought I would ask you, Lauren, about what Ray mentioned, the money. So I thought I'd uh, mention the fact that obviously we're living in a, a, a time where, you know, work is increasingly precarious and casualized. Um, and I mean, that has often been the case for, for writers and critics, but even more so now um, with, I guess, even the changing media and arts landscape. Just wanted to just think about your thoughts on sustaining uh, or developing a sustainable practice. Like, is it possible to do that? Or, or what, are, what are some suggestions for people wanting to engage more in critical writing, how to do so in a way that is somewhat sustainable, perhaps? Having an independent writing practice is not really an individual pursuit. Um, it's not really a career pursuit in, in the way I think about it. A lot of people ask me advice on how to be a writer today. And what I usually tell them is that there's a subtext to that question. And it's where do you stand in society? What resources do you have available to you? What's your standing and, and who do you know in the art and media sectors? Because as you say, what's happening in the world isn't just happening out there. Arts institutions have adopted casual work practices, freelancing, contracting. You know, what that means is that people who can subsidise their way into a sustainable practice are the ones who make it. Unless you can bear the poverty, the discrimination, yeah, unless you can find other ways to bring in money that aren't in the sector. I became a lot happier when I did that as well because it meant that I was off the treadmill of the marketing cycle of what's on. <laughs> you know, like you get a lot of emails coming in from publicists and I was like, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want to be telling people what's on on the weekend, what art shows to go to. I want to be developing new ideas and making an original contribution to knowledge. And so the way to do that for me, to have an independent writing practice, is to write really long essays that feed in ideas from academia and make those ideas available to a broader audience. And I think that's a different way of thinking about it than what are my career prospects? You know, like it's more like what can I do to advance the culture so that we are not imbibing hostile ideologies. We're not imbibing ideas of a fairyland in, you know, as late capitalism advances, as it stagnates rather. I think what I'm seeing from my vantage point is that the institutions are somewhat weak. They're not just underfunded. They're under attack. And in Australia, the long-term effect of living in a settler colonial society that has refused to grapple with that reality is that there's very few um, viewpoints on display. There's a high level of intellectual conformity. So if we're going to talk about having an independent writing practice, we need to talk about how to open up perspectives beyond whatever the dominant liberal viewpoint that, you know, we've just absorbed by, by osmosis is. That requires finding new ways to make work together. It's not just about how you as a freelancer can, like, bargain a better fee from an outlet or, yeah, from an institution. It's about, say, how are we going to ask for full employment again? Are we going to ask arts institutions not just to put us on contracts but for permanency? Um, are we going to ask, collectivise? Are we going to find new ways to honour the independent part of the sector 
so that we are properly funding artists' collectives? And how are we thinking about diversity? Is it is it just a matter of changing the gatekeepers or is it also a matter of changing the values, changing, opening up the, the kind of viewpoints, political, um, cultural perspectives that are available and discussed? And is it really working toward a place where we know that independent, critical, robust arts writing leads to more rigorous practice? The two are connected, right? So we need to support each other collectively, collaboratively, find ways to do that outside the decaying institutions. Yeah, absolutely. So with that in mind, then, how, so Ali, if we can come back to you, how do, how do you develop that independent voice and how do you um, develop your own style um, and your own critical frameworks to do, to do all of those things that we've, that we've just spoken about that both you um, and Rayham Lauren have mentioned. Um, so from a sort of like, from the craft level, like, and we spoke about reading before, but what else, so what else can we do to develop these skills? Um, I, you know, I want to acknowledge the, the, some of the issues that have been raised by Raylene and Lauren in relation to the relationship between institutions and what it means to work within an institution at this point. Um, and for me as an Aboriginal person, what it means to work within a university that's named after a, a non-Indigenous coloniser and that has a tall ship for its logo and consistently is unable to employ, like it has a reconciliation action plan, but it's unable to really find enough Aboriginal academics to be representative of our communities in any of the discipline areas across the university. And I think about the relationship between that institution, which trains gatekeepers for other institutions so we train social workers we train epidemiologists we train doctors nurses we train artists and I'm interested in the relationship between institutions I don't you know that that gray area that Raylene's about and the role of art for me it's a much larger issue around our cultural narratives our ability to be able to see ourselves our ability to be able to tell our stories requires us to not let people just continue, like in our communities, the institutions that I find, like I just want to run screaming from the room around child protection and incarceration. I have to teach about those statistics and that fuels my art practice. If I didn't have meaningful things, if I didn't have something to say about the complete absence of or inability of institutions to continually perpetuate their own power dynamic and the fact that globally it's astounding how complexly tied up we are and that idea of an independent voice or being hamstrung, being paid a wage and in, in a sense the inability to speak truth in that space, what does that mean? And, you know, I, I like what you were saying, Raylene, about what James has talked about in relation to the Art Gallery of South Australia. And I think about the Aboriginal people who are employed in that space. But it's not just about having independent voice. People need to be able to have a creative response to the challenges that we're collectively facing or we're all just, it's so dire otherwise for, well, particularly for me, I can't, and I, I think about, um, like, disciplines like psychology at my university, which I just haven't managed to graduate an Aboriginal person in a PhD 
and I think about the role of individualism and psychology and the suicide rates in my communities and I think about um, how I have so many problems with with the kind of inability of that of that collaboration of that of, yeah I don't know I don't know what I'm I'm pretty you know sad that um yeah, I, I did a topic two weeks ago. I taught an intensive called Decolonising Institutions and I asked students to consider political, cultural, geographical landscapes, particularly the CBD of Adelaide, and really consider where Aboriginal people are, where Ghana people represented in our physical space, in our political space, in our where are Aboriginal people, where are our histories shown, visible, and, you know, and, and then critique critique the way the relationships to power and how we continue to be um, after all of this time after all that we know unable to really break that apart in any real way so I just see it as you know silence is is a killer for our communities we need to be speaking up and lots of people do sorry I've, I've gone off onto a rant I guess those things connect you know in terms of independent voice and for me it's kind of just knowing the facts, the histories, and sometimes uh, the complete silences is that are so almost deafening around us that, you know, seem so obvious about our collectivity and our capacity for love and our humanness, you know. I just wondered if um, if Lauren or Ray wanted to, to add anything or reflect on anything that Ali mentioned. Thank you so much, Ali, for what you share. I've recognised, yeah, it's really tricky because, you know, it's like that article that you shared with me earlier, Jessica, had this, this sort of series of very short sentences that like writing is a privilege, reading is a privilege, being written about is an extreme privilege. And, you know, it does make me wonder because there's a lot of writing out there and with the internet and with online platforms, there's an excessive amount of writing being produced. But yeah, Ali, I think what you really highlight is that there's this massive divide between that writing really impacting these spaces that hold and wield so much sort of power in what is um, displayed and shown. It reminded me, Corinna Lester in the the catalogue for um, the image is not nothing concrete archives that's just opened at Ace Open. Her essay is just phenomenal and it kind of relays all of the advocacy work that she's done around nuclear testing on her homeland. And as incredible as the piece was, I did have this like deep kind of sadness that for her people, her family, it's all been about all of their advocacy and work has been about conforming into these ways of working that are outside what they're generally accustomed to and um, it feels as though a lot of academia and I mean even sometimes with some experimental writing it still sort of conforms to this particular kind of format that's somewhat digestible or that you know it it sort of yeah it would work in a particular way for for a particular audience and yeah I could just imagine that that's just yeah Corinna's essay is beautiful but it just sort of sounds so tiring as well to just be constantly readapting and changing strategy and changing foot all to align with policy and law abiding and all of that sort of thing. Um, yeah, that just sprung to my mind then. Well, I might ask Lauren, in terms of form, like like something that's really interesting is like, the, yeah, the way that 
form, like the formal qualities of criticism can become uh, reproduced or replicated and, and they do different things. So maybe like as a starting point, what's the difference between like a review and criticism? And then like, and maybe just some reflections on that and, and what good critical writing does. I guess I think of a review as being part of that marketing cycle. You know, this is not something that's easy for a lot of writers to admit that they're part of the publicity machine in a way and that there's an aspect of criticism that overlaps with marketing as well as overlapping with you know literature being creative expression in and of itself you know so that's kind of part of why I stepped away from from arts journalism form is connected to ideas and politics and I think in Australia we are going to have to find new forms to communicate because in media in journalism there's just less space for reviews and criticism right and all of it is tied to what's getting a theatrical release or you know editors are taking their leads from the major institutions what's a blockbuster show that's going to have national significance because frankly you know there's so few publications left there's been a shrinkage of the media landscape and the rest of the media landscape is so corporatized we have the most monopolized media you know in the world and I think Ali the silences that you're talking about are related to this limited expression that we have for who to write for critically who who will let us write in an extremely active engaged way because frankly journalism has gotten really boring you know it's trafficking in the same forms the same tired formulaic formats and genres you know they just want you to crank out entertainment journalism which sucks for the reader sucks for us if we want to develop a bit of autonomy and it means we're never going to get any new ideas out there um, and show what the relationship between writing and art is Um, so yeah that's why I have gravitated to the essay and to kind of experimental formats that like draw a bit a bit of a a whirlpool draw the reader into a bit of a vortex because frankly like we need to be real about this most art doesn't challenge power it just doesn't it's in a kind of walled off world of culture but I think if we're gonna have the independent art writing community that we crave we're gonna have to challenge this lack of accessibility lack of availability this formal restriction that is put on to us like Really, who would you write for? Like, there's the Saturday paper, for example, among the big... There's just not that many independent options. So experimenting with form, that is, the devices we're using, um, is really important. And to develop that in myself, I I don't read Australian Press. Like, I just don't. I read, you know, N Plus One, which is probably the most radical politically um, in terms of the Anglophone literary magazines, uh, Harper's, which has long-form essays that think through the Americans, like not just North America, but North and South America, and London Review of Books because they have ideological diversity and they think you you learn stuff. I think that there's a lot of politically undereducated journalists in Australia because you can go through a journalism degree without really studying history or politics or geography. You'd be more likely to study a stream on social media. It's like, do you think most journalists know that the nation state was only invented in 1648? I don't think they do. So we've got to really take this on to ourselves, like to actually understand the hostile ideologies that this world has put on us and said we have to accept it we don't have to accept it but that means creating an independent art sector for each other fantastic 
Lauren just mentioned a few great publications. Ellie and Ray, do you want to maybe recommend like any publications that you particularly love or any particular writers who, who are doing really cool stuff right now? I've been reading a lot of black theory from the US, like uh, Fred Moten and Denise Ferreira de Silva and Eflux is a online, you know, it's kind of arts and really dense theory, but particularly Denise Ferreira de Silva's kind of discussion around kind of racialized grammar and a kind of the ethical judicial kind of crisis that we face globally. <clears throat> so I was particularly, I've, I've been, you know, I usually just, I read a lot of Aboriginal writers. I read, and I also, I'll just read widely. I kind of like some pulp as well sometimes. And I, I like to read a lot of Aboriginal short stories. And I'm constantly trying to seek out, I guess, independent, you know, presses like and that's published with Vagabond and you know there's just a few you know little artists kind of books are really interesting to me as well yeah I guess I'm the same as Ali it's quite diverse I think I'm always sort of checking like other art journals similar to fine print like Runway that do some incredible experimental curated to a degree they've got some beautiful issues and 4A 4A art space in Sydney have 4A papers which are always yeah great resources and they involve a lot of artists writing not just writers writing that is always intriguing and always just takes the writing to a different sort of dimension a different kind of place which I always yeah, I really sort of enjoy. I think reflections from artists is something that, yeah, I really sort of, I seem to be consumed by and can read quite quickly. Sort of that insight direct from an artist um, is, yeah, is really sort of appealing to me. Yeah, fantastic. And and Ali, you mentioned Natalie Harkin before, who I, I'm sure we're all familiar with. I think in terms of like an experimentation with form, you know, using the work that she does with Vagabond is, yeah, using like, maybe what would be in some ways a traditional poetry to use that as an artwork, like an art object as itself that also literally weaves archival texts with poetic responses. Like there's, yeah, so many brilliant people who are doing amazing experimental formal work like that. Thank you so much to everyone for such an incredible, rich and inspiring conversation and for so much vulnerability as well. Thank you. Jessica and I have a couple of questions and we might just throw one out. Do you want to kick off with a question, Jess? Um, well, I suppose I was just going to talk about the development of style. And so just like actually like a really like nuts and bolts question about like, obviously, if you know that what you want to do is like maybe interrogate a work or how do you actually figure out how to achieve the thing that you want to achieve? So talking about some of those those kinds of crafty things. Wonderful. Do you have another question that you'd like to ask, Jess, or would you like me to? No, not really. I mean, I guess the, the thing that we were just talking about in our um, breakup breakout room, <laughs> breakup room, breakout <laughs> room, was about the fact that um, maybe sometimes people can be uh, hesitant to be uh, too critical in what they say like maybe there isn't like a, a culture of people feeling able to respond in a vigorous way <laughs> that in the kind of way that we need that is necessary yeah to have that culture so I just thought I'd mention that that's what we were talking about. Lauren do you mind if I out you for a moment because <laughs> you made some a really great um I guess proposition within our little chat about remodeling how we contribute and how we we write in our industry. Do you mind repeating that 
Yeah, I know. I think it is actually related to what Jessica was saying about challenging this culture of intellectual timidity. Um, I think we're all waiting around for a new form, a new model, a new way for others to, to do critical arts writing, to find a new approach. But I think there's got to be some kind of buy-in across the arts sector from everyone who has a stake in that, and that's everyone, to contribute to a new, I don't know what it would be, you know, a publication, for example, to say, yeah, this, you know, critical arts writing is as important as the art itself and we can't wait around for a philanthropist or a property developer like Maury Schwartz. It, you know, if you really want a kind of alternative to the Murdoch press, the art sector asks ourselves are going to have to collaborate and put in money to pay writers and, and editors to produce really, really great, excellent stuff so we can develop that that part of the sector. Mm. So that's galleries, that's that's the big institutions, it's everyone. Everyone needs to partake in this project. Thanks, Lauren. I think that's a great observation or great way forward. But I'm really interested in what people are reading and who they they turn to. I guess our speakers spoke about that a little bit. Um, but I guess also that we're hearing from particularly passionate people that are doing this for a living and, and interested to know what the rest of us are reading and whether it is as, as critical or whether it's um, kind of more fun reading. Does anyone want to reveal what they're reading and how it might inform their practice? Go on, Susan. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope it's all right to mention this. It feels very strange to sort of land here, knowing what's just sort of gone on around us um, in the Australian political space, you know, just an hour before. And I feel like actually probably social media is what I read. And that's where I get all my leads. I don't, I don't mean exploiting other people's knowledge. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what I'm curating at the moment. And so I have all these amazing voices that are local, they're Aboriginal, they're international. And then that's where... I then follow a thread and usually I might be following the thread of the speaker, uh, something that they've written, something that they've produced. And I think the other thing that I'd say is this COVID certainly for me, I mean, I know the popular narrative about it is it has made us look at our lives and I think that's true. If you have the um, position to be able to look at your life and detach from it and look at it. And I felt there was the moment where I could have, like, just walked away from the arts. <laughs> and I kind of did that for, like, half a day. And then I returned and I'm all in. I'm all in. And that kind of, I think, aligns with what Lauren is saying a bit, like, and, and, and Ali as well and her community. I'm all in. And, yeah, having a voice and finding a way for those words to go together with that voice. So... That's what I'd say. I ask you a question, Susan, which is a little bit off this um, particular panel, but I know that you've just been part of a wonderful project through Guildhouse, which was artist, a writer in residence at the City Library with the City of Adelaide. And you had the opportunity to read your works to an audience. And it was new work and it was work that you'd been developing through the residency, but also quite separate to that residency as well, I think, returning to Adelaide and synthesising quite a lot of information and, and feelings. And I wonder how that felt for you actually presenting that to an audience and getting outside of the studio. Because I guess a lot of writers don't see the response to their words. They, they kind of write them and they're, they're 
setting their baby free. But I wonder how you felt actually having the opportunity to perform them in front of an audience and if that changed the words in any way or your feeling. Oh, look, I really appreciate it. And I thank Guildhouse again, um, City of Adelaide, for that opportunity. Um, and that's what I like about Guildhouse, as I said on the day. You know, they have supported two artists in residence, an emerging curator and myself, as well as all these other projects. And, you know, our residency sort of started, my residency started two weeks after Adelaide came out of lockdown. And they went ahead. They went ahead with those residencies. That One of the questions became in the application, could you do this at home if you had to? And they never once used the words resilience or adapt even though, as I say, I know I'm really resilient and I did adapt. But, um, you know, that gets used as a way, like, leave this arts business and go and do something proper. But that's not what Guildhouse did, so I appreciate that. And, look, I, I, I loved doing that reading and I loved the responses that I got from people. But what I found that I did was I had already put in an application to Art South Australia to keep writing. And from that reading, I found myself applying for an Australia Council grant and not enjoying that process one little bit. And I thought, oh, my God, I've got into that trap again of spending all my time writing about writing instead of writing. And I just have to have some sense of, um, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what the right word to use in this particular <laughs> context is, but belief that something's going to happen from that writing and that it doesn't have to be an Australia Council grant that will force me to go in a particular direction that actually I don't really want to do and I'd rather just stay home and write or go elsewhere and write. So, And I have a habitual thing of wanting to curate all the time and actually it's much better if I put all that energy and ideas into the writing. So that's what I'm doing. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. <laughs> um, do we have any closing remarks from any of the speakers or from, from Jessica? Oh, well, if the, I mean, throw it over to Ali, Ray and Lauren if there's anything else to add. I think that's a, just a good point, though, Susan, about, you know, yeah, as, as Lauren was saying, about not waiting around for a philanthropist, also not waiting around for government funding <laughs> to change. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of important advocacy work that we will all do, but you can't wait around for for a grant, um, I suppose, that there have to be other ways of getting your work out there and your voice out there. Wonderful. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you to Jessica and Ali and Raylene and to Lauren. It's really fantastic to hear this conversation and I feel like it's really the tip of the iceberg and think of some more questions and continue this conversation ahead for a long time to come. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.